Welcome to the Policy Leadership Series podcast from Resources for the Future. In every episode, leading global decision makers speak to RFF President and CEO Richard Newell about big environmental and energy policy issues. In this episode, Richard speaks to the Deputy Secretary at the U.S. Department of Energy, David Turk. Their conversation took place on August 11th. It's really a pleasure to have you here today. Well, thanks, Richard. It's great to be with you and with everybody here. And let me give a special shout out, Richard, for you and your career, not only at RFF, but also at the Department of Energy, including leading our Energy Information Agency, which is just an incredibly important part, putting out nonpartisan, independent analysis numbers, et cetera. And just a special shout out to RFF for those colleagues who are part of RFF. Thank you for what you're doing. Incredible work for many, many years, putting out just terrific analysis from my own perspective, I think my DOE colleagues would agree. So thanks for having me here. I appreciate that. And for our audience in the room and virtually, I'll take the next 45 minutes or so to engage in conversation. We'll talk about Deputy Secretary Turk's uh, experience and how that influences the way he's approaching his role at DOE. We'll talk about the ongoing challenges with high energy prices. Uh, We'll talk about policies and technologies that can help support a, a clean energy transition while maintaining U.S. economic competitiveness. And also, we'll talk about approaches to ensuring that that transition is uh, just and equitable. So we'll touch on a lot of different things. Following that, we'll move to audience Q&A. And uh, for those of you tuning in online, you can enter any questions into the question box at the uh, bottom of your screen. We've also been taking some questions in advance, and I'll weave some of those questions into our initial dialogue. Uh, Lastly, if you want to join the conversation on Twitter, please use hashtag RFFLive. So uh, kind of where to begin? There's been, uh, there's no shortage of things to talk about. There's been a huge amount of news and also work that's been done over the last several months. You know, for it being August, August is supposed to be quiet, but it's, I think, been anything but that so far. But let's uh, start first on how your background influences how you're approaching your role at DOE, your goals at DOE, your background, both in the U.S. government, but also working internationally in the International Energy Agency, both on climate issues and also energy issues. So give us a sense of how that's influencing the way that you're approaching the job. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks, Richard. And um, I've been incredibly lucky and fortunate in my career to have had some really, really interesting positions and hopefully real-world impactful positions. And certainly, uh, it's an honor of a lifetime to be the Deputy Secretary at the Department of Energy especially at this moment in time where Congress is giving us all sorts of funding and authorities to really accelerate the clean energy transition. So myself, Secretary Granholm, who's just a phenomenal, phenomenal secretary for anyone who's had a chance to meet her either professionally or personally, and she's the kind of person that you get the same in private as you get in public, which is a real strong indicator of her character and her as a person as well. So I guess maybe a couple things I'd say. One, I think early in life, we all have formative experiences. And for me, there were a couple that really stick out. One is I had the fortunate consequence to uh, actually live abroad for the first six years of my life. I was born in Ecuador, lived in Chile, and lived in Brazil, and then moved to a small town in Illinois, which I'll get to in a minute. And for me, that was incredibly fortunate to have that perspective, even as a little kid. Little kids, for those who have little kids, they pick up on more than we think they pick up sometimes. They're little sponges. And really useful to get a sense of perspective, right? Like, I think as we all grow up, as we all start our career, sometimes we don't have perspective. And for me, especially for the international work that I've been able to do, it's good to be able to see, to empathize, to understand where others are coming from. And so I think that's been very influential for me. And then when I moved to a small town in Illinois, 
uh, it was a steel mill community, agricultural and steel mill community. And the steel mill, as a lot of small towns in Midwest and throughout the country and other places in the world, was basically closing down throughout my whole childhood. And that had a real impact on me in terms of what does it mean when you have those economic challenges, when jobs are being lost, when dads and moms are losing their jobs, families are being really put in incredibly tough circumstances, which again makes me feel personally very fulfilled to be in a job like this with the funding, with the support, with the programs that we're able to not only accelerate the clean energy transition, but also build out jobs, build out manufacturing, have the supply chains, have all the other things that we're talking about on this front, because I saw that in my community, and we see that certainly in communities, as the president has spoken so eloquently, Secretary Granholm, as well. So I've had a chance to work in the government, the U.S. government, and the State Department a couple times, the White House, Department of Energy a couple times. Again, useful to work in different agencies to understand those perspectives. And then the job that I held previous to this, as you mentioned, Richard, at the International Energy Agency, the IEA, Phenomenal organization. It's based in Paris, which was not a bad place to live and work for four years and get a chance four or five years. But phenomenal colleagues from all over the world working in a multicultural setting. Phenomenal analysts, phenomenal colleagues. The boss of the IA, who's one of my mentors and a good friend, Dr. Fatih Birol, just a phenomenal visionary in the energy world, including in the clean energy transition space. So again, I've been open to different opportunities Luckily, I've been able to take advantage of those opportunities when they've come. Yeah. We're really lucky to have somebody with such a diversity of experience in that position, because as you know from being now at DOE a a few times, it really does bring together an unbelievable number of different issues which have only increased in importance and including over the last year. So one of the things I want to turn to is, uh, which is on many people's minds, is uh, gasoline prices and oil prices. You know, it's all over the news today, actually that the retail price of gasoline in the United States actually dipped down below $4 a gallon. It was as high as $5 per gallon. The price of oil has come down by about $30 per barrel, and that really just translates directly into lower uh, gasoline prices. So if we focus in on oil, give us a sense of the actions that the Department of Energy and that the U.S. government has been taking on oil. There's been releases from the Strategic Petroleum Reserves. There's been a collaboration coordination with other countries, both consumers and producers. Give us a sense of, of what actions have been taken, kind of where that stands. Is that finished? Um, is it midway? And um, has it made a difference? Yeah, thanks, Richard. And uh, since you mentioned Department of Energy and our colleagues there, I have to make a plug. I'll make this at least seven times during the course of this conversation. As we implement all this great clean energy transition stuff, and it literally is billions and billions, tens of billions of dollars, um, huge opportunity space, we're actually hiring up significantly. We've got something called our Clean Energy Core, where we're trying to make it easier for people to get into the federal government, to try to streamline the processes. And so for those who are interested in being part of the government right now at this historic opportunity of executing on the clean energy transition, please, please apply. And I'll get to that at least six more times, if that's okay, in the course of this conversation. I think I've heard, uh, you know, close to 1,000 people or 1,000 people that DOE needs to hire. Is that about right? That's right. And as important as the number is, and um, it'll be at least 700 people, and we're trying to do this from a bottom-up way. What are the needs? How do we actually build up the team? The quantity is impressive, but even more impressive, and I think you can uh, hopefully agree from your time at DOE, is the quality. We've got some phenomenal talent at the Department of Energy already, experts, literally top experts in their fields. But we need more talent. We need diverse talent. We need talent that represents America and has a 
huge amount of skill set. So again, government service is not for everybody, but this is a particularly good time to think about a stint in government, whether you're starting your career or a little further along in your career. All right, we'll do it six more times and, <laughs> and make the plug. All right, so gas prices. May be useful to start, and especially with an analytically rigorous organization like RFF, to put politics aside. There's a lot of politics that's played on this issue, and to actually talk about what caused gas prices to be high, and then what we're actually trying to do in this administration using the tools that we have to try to help. What caused gas prices to be high is really a combination of two things. One, COVID, like everything in life the past couple years, COVID has thrown international energy markets and uh, gasoline, which comes from crude oil. Crude oil is traded globally. It is a global commodity. And so there is a global price associated with crude oil. It's demand, supply, basic economics 101. COVID threw international crude markets completely out of whack. So there was a time not too long ago, although it seems like decades ago at this point, where demand just plummeted right? We all started working and doing school from home, a lot less driving. Demand plummeted, and we actually had negative oil prices for a limited amount of time, which had never happened before. So people were paying others to take their oil. Oil was gasoline at the pump was incredibly cheap. Oil was incredibly cheap along those lines. As economies have recovered, then the, the demand has increased, but the supply then went down because the supply was down demand from that sharp crash. And put simply, supply has not matched up with demand until more recently. And so that's what COVID has caused to a big whack, a big anomaly in terms of the price of gasoline that we pay at the pump. Put on top of that, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Russia is an incredibly large producer of oil and exporter of oil. And the invasion of Ukraine has further thrown international oil markets into some real challenge along those lines. So that's historic to have yeah. both of those together. That's why we saw oil prices go up the way we did. And that's why gasoline prices went up at the pump. And they're lower now. We're down to under $4 per gallon. That's great compared to being over $5 per gallon just a month and a half or so ago. But to answer your question directly, certainly from this administration, that's too high. That is pain at the pump. It's part of what's driving inflation. We need to drive that down to a level that Americans around the country can afford. It doesn't impact their household uh, spending in the way it does uh, now. So how did we get from $5, over $5 per gallon, down to $4 per gallon? Well, certainly in the federal government, we uh, tried to use every tool that we had at our disposal uh, in order to make progress on that. One that I'll highlight in particular at the Department of Energy is something called our Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which was set up back in the 70s to have a big reserve of oil and the U.S. so that we could put that into the market if there were a hurricane or other disruptions into the supply and demand balances along those lines. What President Biden, Secretary Granholm, the rest of us worked on is we put in place the largest historic release of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve at this time where demand and supply were not matching up in order to have that be a part of the solution which had some downward pressure on the price at the pump. And we're seeing the SPR, among a number of other things, causing the supply demand to match up uh, more and that downward pressure getting down to uh, less than $4 per gallon. Still not good enough. We're going to work at it. We're going to keep working at the tools in the tool belt. But that is a, a big, big priority. As the president has said, it's priority number one to uh, provide affordability 
uh, for every American across the country. And uh, I was just looking at this. I think uh, about 120 million barrels have been released since uh, February. Are we midway? Is it done for now? And just kind of a quick follow-up on that. Yep. Is there any kind of longer-term philosophy? Is it, you know, is kind of depleting the SPR down and keeping it low, is that the end game? Or I think I've also read that there are some new ideas for how it might be filled up a little more efficiently in the future. So give a sense of... Uh, you know, kind of that longer term as well. Yeah, absolutely, Richard. And certainly the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, SPR is the acronym it goes by, is one tool in the tool belt. And yeah. in and of itself, it's not going to solve the problem, but it is an important tool that we have. So it's also useful to point out that it's not just the U.S. that has reserves. We actually have countries around the world, key allies who have reserves as well. So as we've been releasing oil out of our Strategic Petroleum Reserve, we've done that in concert and collaboration with other countries through the International Energy Agency, through the IEA. And so there's been release millions of barrels, tens of millions of barrels from other countries around the world that helps the global market match up more generally. So what the president did is, uh, and this is unprecedented, is we made an announcement that we're going to have a six-month bridge of time to use the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, around a million barrels per day just out of our U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and that's complemented by other countries along those lines so that we can get to a point like we're getting to now where supply and demand match up better and there's downward pressure on that price. So we talked about it as a bridge. Right now we're well along that bridge and we wanna make sure that that bridge is as long as it can be as and as flexible as it can be so that we can deal with further challenges as we have them, whether hurricanes or otherwise. And we've used the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to deal with hurricane disruptions in the past and wanna make sure that's available. What we need to do is use the Strategic Petroleum Reserve when we have extraordinary challenges like we're currently facing, and then fill it back up when the price is low. So right now, Americans, we're actually selling it when oil is really high. That is a lot of money coming in, and then we'll use that money to buy back oil, and buy back oil when the price is a lot lower, when it's cheaper. A, we get a better bargain on, on those kinds of things, and then we fill it up so that we're ready for the next time. I want to stick with uh, global energy markets and energy security for a moment and maybe talk a little bit about the other gas, natural gas, in contrast to gasoline. And so given the state of geopolitics that are shaping and shifting current energy markets, there's interest also including some of our online questions about, you know, kind of U.S. viewpoints and administration viewpoints on global gas infrastructure, especially in countries that have historically relied on Russia for natural gas, including in the European Union, which is connected by, you know, pipelines to Russia. Uh, so in particular, we've got a question. It came in from Maya Weber. Uh, Maya is the senior editor at S&P Global Commodity Insights, and she asks, what is the administration's posture towards supporting natural gas infrastructure overseas? And then the kind of a flip side or other part of the equation, related note from Michael Huber. He's a reporter from Japan's Asahi Shimbun newspaper. He asks, are there any plans to expand the U.S.'s LNG refining capacity to help cover energy needs over the short term. So there's kind of like what is happening domestically on natural gas and LNG, and then also kind of global infrastructure outside the United States, and how you all at the Department of Energy, the administration, yeah, are thinking absolutely. about that. So important to understand as context here, Russia is not only a big exporter of oil onto the global market, but they're a major exporter of natural gas, especially to Europe. Now, we've been talking with our German colleagues for many years, actually, and others in Europe, maybe it's not so great understating it, uh, to be so dependent on one country for such a critical part of your existing energy needs. Unfortunately, countries made decisions. It's in their right to make sovereign 
decisions along those lines. Nord Stream 2 may be something that some of you are familiar with along those lines. And Europe got itself overly dependent on Russia natural gas. Now, uh, in normal circumstances, uh, relatively cheap coming in, but in a situation and with a country and with a dictator who is willing to use energy as a weapon, and President Putin is using energy as a weapon, that is not good for your own security, your energy security, your ability to heat your homes in winter, keep your businesses with the gas that they need along those lines. So in this time of need where Europe is appreciating that they need to get off of Russia natural gas and do it as quickly as they possibly can, they're going to need a bridge of their own on the natural gas side of things. And right now, one of the ways that that's being fulfilled is U.S. LNG liquefied natural gas uh, from the U.S. being shipped over to Europe. Now, our natural gas through LNG goes to Asia, goes to Japan, goes to Korea, goes elsewhere as well along those lines, but a significant portion, a percentage of the natural gas to LNG is going to Europe right now, helping the Europeans prepare for the winter in particular, building up their storage so that they can weather the winter and all the challenges that might be thrown at them. So it's been incredibly, incredibly important, our U.S. natural gas for our European allies in this time of need. Now, the Europeans are also leaning in on the clean energy transition, just like we're leaning in in the U.S. on the clean energy transition, but you can't do that all in the span of a few months period of time to get ready for winter. And so, you know, they've got to do what they've got to do to be prepared going forward. So in order for Europe to accept the volumes of natural gas, right now the vast majority of natural gas coming from Russia is coming through pipeline. We do not have a big pipeline from the U.S. going to Europe. And so if Europe is going to take U.S. natural gas or natural gas from Qatar or from others, then they need to build out some of their infrastructure in order to be able to import the LNG along those lines. So there is a need. Germans, others are making some investments along those lines. And uh, we're certainly, the U.S. natural gas is playing an important role internationally, no doubt in Europe, but elsewhere along those lines. And what we need to be thinking about is for that natural gas in the system to be as clean as it possibly can be, Many of us have spent many years focused on methane emissions in natural gas and the natural gas life cycle. Methane is a super greenhouse gas emitter, even more so than CO2, and we need to make sure there's no leaks. We need to make sure that that's not just being emitted and causing a challenge in the atmosphere. And then we also need to be thinking about what's the ultimate play? How do we ultimately get to net zero emissions, the kinds of emission reductions, dramatic emission reductions science has told us, scientists have warned us for many years, the science is only improving upon, as you know, Richard, on this front. We need to be thinking about natural gas facilities that are hydrogen ready so that we can be part of that transition, so that we can lean into that transition. And the U.S., I think, signed on to something called the Methane Pledge last November at the COP, right? The Conference right. of the Parties. And we'll come to, in just a minute, actually, I think maybe right now, the Inflation Reduction Act, a very other very important piece of news, also has some methane provisions in there as well as um, EPA rules around uh, methane reduction. So what I hear you saying is that both addressing the methane emission leaks to ensure that the gas is as clean as possible, European infrastructure, and then I guess now the U.S. is the U.S. largest LNG producer now, actually even larger than Qatar. So in response to one of the questions that came up, that, I mean, the U.S. is in fact very significantly expanding its LNG capacity Currently, I think it's not even done yet. Does that sound right to you? I mean, in terms of like the 
So as with much in the U.S., uh, this is private sector decision-making. This right. is private sector driven along these lines. And I think what we need to do is really, um, as many of us have put it, walk and chew gum at the same time. Okay. We've got some particular energy security challenges right now, Russia, Ukraine, coming out of COVID, the energy balance, the energy imbalance that we're still working through on that end. So there's certain things that we need to do in the near term to provide the affordability for the Americans, to make sure our economy is as strong as it possibly can be, as resilient as it possibly can be. We can do that and do things like the Strategic Petroleum Reserve release and methane emission reduction, getting more of our LNG over to Europe. And at the same time, we can accelerate, further accelerate our clean energy transition yeah. and make sure we're doing everything that we possibly can do to have more offshore wind, to have more solar PV, to have more batteries, to have more onshoring of critical minerals and supply chains along those lines. We have to do both of those, and we can't lose sight of, and this administration has not lost sight of, in the historic legislation that's already been passed and the other one that'll be passed shortly from the House. Newsflash, it looks like the House is going to pass the yeah. big Inflation Reduction Act tomorrow. We'll wait until they do because it's a different branch of government. But that is a huge, huge deal and huge, huge tax incentives, other tools, including a lot of funding that goes to the Department of Energy to further accelerate that clean energy transition in a way that's good for energy security, near-term, medium-term, and long-term, but also gets us the climate reductions, the CO2 reductions that we need. Each episode of RFS Policy Leadership Series podcast is made possible by listeners like you. This series provides thoughtful conversations with leading experts to better connect and inform our community on the latest environmental and economics issues. And you can help us by supporting RFF. You join us in our mission to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economics research and policy engagement. Learn more about contributing to RFF today by visiting rff.org support. So um, as I think everybody knows now, the Senate passed by 51 to 50 vote on Sunday, the Inflation Reduction Act, the House is scheduled to vote as soon as tomorrow. Um, I'm presuming that the president would sign it. I guess I shouldn't presume those things, but I, 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 I can think, guarantee that, I think. <laughs> I think indicators are that if that passes, the president will sign that. And so maybe next week we've got you know, the largest infusion through the budget reconciliation package into the U.S. economy ever for funding around you know, decarbonization, clean energy, and also significant elements of domestic economic competitiveness in there. So that, as you said, Deputy Secretary, you know, that takes the form of, uh, it's taking the form, if it passes, of tax incentives for electric vehicles, for clean power, for residential home retrofits and electrification, a lot of different approaches in there. Can you speak to what you all are seeing as the biggest impacts of that legislation? And then also speak a bit to like DOE's role, you know, if it passes, assuming it passes, what is DOE's role in implementation of that? And are there any other kind of ripple effects that influence what you'll be doing at DOE, again, if that passes? Yeah, absolutely. So first I need to, especially for those in our audience and uh, those online who have been advocating for uh, climate legislation, who've been working for climate legislation in one form or another, whether in the government, whether in an NGO, whether in a company, just a big, big thanks. This is a historic achievement. We should all feel incredible pride that democracy here in the U.S. has worked. And we have the biggest, most historic piece of climate legislation that we've ever had in the U.S. And we should, uh, those of us, and I include myself in that, who've been working on this for years and years. I remember the Waxman-Markey days and other attempts and challenges that we've had along the way. 
$369 billion of investment, all the tax incentives, but there's an awful lot more in there for those who've looked at the details. Different modelers, and you know something about this yourself and other RFF colleagues who've taken a look at it, very consistent with our own internal modeling, that this bill will help us, along with a lot of other things, get to 40% reductions in our greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. That is an incredible achievement. That is not something that is uh, inevitable, that requires an awful lot of work by a lot of people, but a lot of decisions going forward. Now, is 40% reduction where we need to be? No, it's not. The president's put on the table 50 to 52% reductions by that 2030 time period. So we still have some additional work to do, but 40% is a big, big step going forward. And again, a big thanks to uh, everybody who's worked on that. The way to think about, I think, the Inflation Reduction Act, the legislation that will be passed by the House, and the president will sign it uh, shortly thereafter, is it gives a wind at the back. I think it gives it the wind at the back in a very diversified way for a whole range of clean energy technologies, a whole range of sectors. So it's the tax incentives, but there's a lot more in there as well. And one of the key challenges and opportunities for us at the Department of Energy, where we've got experts on solar and wind who've been pushing these for years and years, we've got folks working on our 17 national labs who've done a lot of the R&D to get us to the point where we have some of these cost-effective solutions, is we need to take advantage of that wind at the back. We need to take advantage of all of the programs, the tax incentives, the grant programs. We got $62 billion additionally in the infrastructure bill that passed late last year. That's the amount that came to DOE to work on hydrogen hubs, clean hydrogen hubs. That came to DOE to build out our EV charging system, $7.5 billion that we're working hand-in-hand with the Department of Transportation on to build out that part of it. So all of these individual efforts have individual wind at the back of all these technology areas, and together it's a wind at the back of the overall clean energy transition. And where we're humbled, I'm humbled being in this position, is we've got to execute. We've got to make sure that we harness that wind at the back, just like our wind turbines harness as best they can the wind that's blowing across our country, and to get the maximum benefit for that as quickly as we possibly can, because we don't have time to wait on that front. But uh, we need more legislation. There's no doubt about that. We need additional work from Congress. We need additional work on execution from not only the Department of Energy. One of the things that I think unfocused on more than it should is how much we need departments working together and departments working with other key actors out there, whether it's businesses, entrepreneurs, NGOs, universities, to really accelerate the transition. So we work with the Department of Transportation, as I said, on EV charging infrastructure, an absolutely critical part to get the EV revolution, which is really happening right now, and we need to accelerate it further. I was just meeting with my Department of uh, Treasury colleague. They'll be doing a lot of the execution on the tax incentives, and what we were talking about is making sure that as we're doing our big grant programs, our big demonstration programs, $62 billion, that that dovetails with harnesses accelerates, catalyzes the uh, tax incentives and vice versa. And so we'll be spending a lot of time working on that. One of the things that's included in that legislation that I'm, I'm kind of curious whether this, I assume this has caught the attention of DOE, is that the the formulation of the tax credits, which have historically been kind of technology-based, you know, production tax credit for wind and investment tax credit for solar, you know, something for carbon capture and storage, that there's, uh, for the power sector, going to be a transition of that approach to being more technology inclusive and not targeting specific technologies, but targeting the the zero emission nature of those technologies. Now, 
from a DOE point of view, would seem to do is kind of open up the potential and the aperture for new innovations, technologies, without kind of preordaining that they have to be of a particular type in order to receive these tax credits. And so when you talk about, I would say that's good news when there's connectivity between the folks at Treasury that are implementing that and how the stream that, of work that you're doing at DOE can then take advantage in a more technology-inclusive way. That seems really important. So I don't know if there's any more specific ripple effects there, but that would seem to be a good policy innovation from the point of view of energy innovation. Well, I think so. And Chairman Wyden from the Senate Finance Committee deserves an awful lot of credit yeah. for trying to make sure that we were maximally getting the benefit from these tax credits and, and doing it very thoughtfully and some real innovation in terms of that part of the bill, that part of the legislation. I think what we need to think about is it's the individual technologies. Solar PV has been transformative. Wind has been transformative. Onshore wind, now we're finally in the U.S., and I feel really, really good about the progress we've made in this administration so far on offshore wind. I think offshore wind is a huge, huge opportunity. And we at the Department of Energy have been focused on this for years and years, decades, floating offshore wind so that we can have offshore wind not just in shallower areas but in deeper areas, including off the West Coast. I think that's a game changer, and people will see that more and more as a game changer. We need to bring all of these together. And a couple areas I'd like to focus on in particular, we spend a lot of time at the Department of Energy is really focused on the grid and focused on how we take all these renewable energy resources, put them together, provide the reliable, the affordable, the consistent, the cyber secure benefits to American people. The grid doesn't get as much attention as it probably deserves to get. Energy storage is a critical technology as well to make sure that we can complement the solar and the wind and make sure, again, it's there 24-7 as we expect our electricity in this country and hopefully around the world for everybody to be consistent in there along those lines. And while we've made a significant amount of decarbonization progress in electricity, we need to focus on transportation, not just on passenger vehicles. And the electric vehicle revolution is happening. I was just reading this morning, the latest estimates are that just in this administration, we've actually tripled the amount of electric vehicles that are sold as a percentage of overall vehicles just in this administration. Mm -hmm less than two-year period of time. Incredible, incredible achievement. And we need to accelerate that even further, which is why we're working on the, on the EV charging infrastructure. But it's industry. Industry, a lot of industry is known as a harder to decarbonize area. There's some significant tax incentives and other programs in this bill for DOE working with others, Department of Energy working with others, to decarbonize, to work with industry, to decarbonize as quickly as we possibly can there. And then buildings. We need to decarbonize our buildings, whether it's new buildings or retrofitting buildings as well, and all the appliances that go into those buildings. As you know, the Department of Energy is the part of the government that focuses on efficiency regulations to make sure we've got as efficient lighting as we possibly can, heat pumps, other kinds of technology areas. So it's incredibly exciting, not only these individual areas, but to try to take the analytical rigor of DOE informed by RFF and other analysis to bring it all together so we can actually accelerate the whole economy and get to our overall goals. So uh, I think we've already touched a bit on, um, until the focus, the current focus on the Inflation Reduction Act, there was this other tremendous investment in clean energy called the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, IAJA, also called the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, which passed last November and had, I think, about $65 billion in it for activities that would be implemented by the Department of Energy. If I understand right, the largest infusion into the Department of Energy since the Manhattan Project, which you know gave rise to the Department of Energy uh, back when. So really, really tremendous with a very strong orientation toward uh, transition 
toward clean energy. So this is an you know, amazing opportunity for the Department of Energy and for clean energy innovation, also like a tremendous spotlight on the Department of Energy to implement that. So while that's, you know, kind of the policy news happened several months ago, I, I know in terms of the Department of Energy, like this is something that's very important, very active right now to kind of get that money out the door, hydrogen hubs, direct air capture hubs, carbon capture and storage. So if you could give us a sense about like what you all see as the most important work that you're doing on implementation of that infrastructure law. And also maybe go a little bit into more detail about the kinds of rules approaches that you're using to ensure that the allocation of those funds are efficient, that they're effective, and also that they're equitable. You know, there's a, in some ways a more complex set of issues that we're dealing with now in the clean energy system. Now that you know, clean energy is big energy, and there's attention to community impacts of that. So give us a sense of what's going on there and how the rules are being designed in a way and you're setting up your programs to do that efficiently, effectively, equitably. Yeah, thanks, Richard. So in and of itself, the infrastructure bill, this is the bipartisan one that was passed late last year, was the biggest thing to happen to the Department of Energy since it was created back in the 70s. Over $60 billion, just DOE, other agencies had some significant amounts of funding covering a whole range of technology areas. You mentioned some that are or others beyond there, including a significant amount of money for grids, as I was mentioning in building out our transmission system. And now we have some more on grids and transmission in this newest bill as well. If you take a look at what that means on an annual basis in terms of what the Department of Energy does on more demonstration deployment further along on the TRL scale, for those who know what the TRL scale is about, it's actually three times the amount we would normally spend in a year just from this one piece of legislation, just to give you a sense of scale and scope of what this means the Department of Energy can do. That in itself caused us to need to hire up those additional 700 to 1,000 people to be able to manage all these programs, but not just manage them in terms of all the good governance things and make sure that we're doing them the right way that American taxpayers expect their taxes to be spent but to get the most catalytic impact. So we don't want to just do a clean hydrogen hub that's a nice project. We want to do it in a way that catalyzes the whole clean energy as part of what helps us decarbonize industry. And likewise for the grids, likewise for the EV chargers, all the other areas. That's why we need really smart people to come join us, Clean Energy Corps at the Department of Energy, to be part of this, to bring your creativity, to bring your enthusiasm, and to bring the kind of thinking that we need if we're going to be successful at this historic level of investment, again, that the American taxpayers have entrusted to us and the Department of Energy. And then you put on top of that the newest bill that's going to be passed by the House tomorrow, and it's a one-two double punch. Either one of those would be the biggest thing to happen to the Department of Energy. Put them together, and that's the level of historic opportunity going forward. Now, among the other goals that we have, very importantly, and you mentioned it, Richard, but I want to emphasize it here, is the equity piece and making sure that as we're building out this clean energy infrastructure of the future, we do it in a way that is fully inclusive, we do it in a way that's fully fair, and the benefits go to all communities. There have been some communities that have borne the brunt of our energy systems in the past. We need to have special emphasis on those communities so that more of the benefits of this clean energy transition can happen in those communities that, frankly, from a fairness perspective, from a morality perspective, from a political science perspective, whatever perspective you want to come at it, deserve to have more investment, deserve to have that opportunity for jobs, for economic opportunity, for healthy air, for healthy water, all those kinds of things that we need to have all around. 
So we spent a lot of time and focus on that. We've got a phenomenal colleague who we brought in earlier, Shawanda Baker, who's helping to lead that effort in the Department of Energy. There's something called Justice 40 that the president has kicked off uh, in the campaign, and we're implementing that right now, where 40% of the benefits of these programs, and I think we have upwards of 100 programs throughout the Department of Energy who are participating in this, go to communities that have borne the brunt of environmental challenges in the past. And we also need to focus on those communities that, whether it's mining communities, coal plant communities, those communities that have been part of the energy infrastructure in our country for many, many years, we need to keep a particular emphasis on there, keep a jobs emphasis there, an economic development emphasis there, so that everybody benefits from this transition in a real meaningful way, not just in terms of the carbon reduction. So it's a huge, huge focus of the entire administration, an absolute top priority for us at the Department of Energy. Let's, yeah, that, I'm glad you brought that up. Let's dig into that a little bit more. And uh, you mentioned the, the Justice 40 initiative, really important initiative of the whole administration. And each agency has been asked to develop the tools, develop the policies that help ensure that 40% of the benefits of actions around the clean energy transition and climate actions go to disadvantaged communities. And the Department of Energy has actually been, a, as I see it, a leader among agencies in developing tools and metrics. Because you, you know, when you when you want to actually ensure that the work you're doing is delivering on that, you need to measure things, you need to define things, you need to have tools that can help inform decisions. So, could you give us like maybe a flavor? I don't know if you have a couple examples of, of how is implementation of the you know the Justice 40 tools that you've designed at the Department of Energy. How are those? intended or going to influence decisions? So this is not easy and it requires a real level of rigor and seriousness and sense of purpose. And again, I feel really good. And thanks for the nice words, Richard. I completely agree. I think the Department of Energy is ahead of the curve on dealing with this and dealing with it very straightforward, dealing with it transparently. All the engagement with communities, right? This is an area that it's not just DC and smart people in DC coming up with this. We spend an awful lot of time listening to communities, listening to perspectives, around the country and different perspectives, right? You're going to get a different perspective in one part of the country as you're going to get in another part of the country. You're going to get a different perspective whether you're in a city or whether you're out in the countryside or a small town where I grew up along those lines. So I just emphasize the rigor that's associated with it. If you're going to be serious about this, you need to measure, you need to have systems in place, and you need to have a sense of shared ownership in place one thing that Shalanda and Tony and the rest of the colleagues at the Department of Energy have done a phenomenal job of, it's not just one office that's focused on this. What we've done, and the Secretary and I have made this clear throughout our colleagues, is this is a job for everybody. This is not just a nice-to-have, this is a must-have, and needs to be a fundamental part of all of these programs that we're doing. And it's been incredible to see people who've literally worked 30 or 40 years in a certain technology area really kind of having that epiphany moment where they are getting as excited as anybody else about making sure that there's this equity, making sure that there's this responsiveness uh, to disadvantaged communities in terms of how they design their funding opportunities, how they implement those funding opportunities. So I think you'll see a whole lot more real-world success coming from it, but it's built upon a huge amount of rigor and a lot of work that's gone on. Yeah, it's, as you said, it's not something that necessarily historically would have been there in terms of, you know, engineers and scientists, you know, bringing equity dimension toward technology assessment to draw the kind of things that do it. It's new. It's new and it's just the right thing to do. Yeah. And what's great is to see people who are technologists and engineers, and we have a lot of those at the Department of Energy, you know, Richard, from your time there, get excited and embrace it because yeah. I think we all intuitively 
know it's the right thing to do and it fundamentally needs to be part of how we go about business. It's just got to be an indispensable part of how we do things. We're going to turn to audience questions in just a minute, but I had one other question I want to ask you before we do that, and it relates to critical minerals and the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, also actions under the Defense Production Act. There's been a number of different actions that are being taken around critical minerals, which are very important ingredients in electric vehicles and other types of clean energy, as well as many other parts of the economy. So give us a sense of the importance of critical minerals to the clean energy transition and what the Department of Energy is doing on that front to help ensure you know, supply chains for critical minerals or other things that are resilient and also, we would hope, also sustainable. So I think this is one of the most exciting areas, both in the infrastructure bill, which had a lot of money and focus on critical minerals, including, I think, it's $7 billion for battery supply chains. That's a lot of money to build the batteries for our EVs and the other kinds of stationary uh, functions that we need batteries to serve on the grid. But there's a lot of money and tax incentives that are relevant on this. And the critical minerals piece is something that those who focus on these issues, those who do the modeling and understand the volume of what we're going to need in terms of solar PVs, the volume of what we're going to need in batteries, the volume of what we're going to need in wind turbines and magnets and everything else that is fundamental to our clean energy transition, appreciate that we need to have reliable, secure, and affordable supplies. And that goes to mining. It also goes to processing. And right now, we do not have a diversified, secure source of critical minerals all around the world right now. China, in particular, has a stranglehold on some parts of the supply chains, especially when it comes to processing. That's not good in terms of our security. That's not good in terms of uh, security for others around the world at this particular point in time and going into the future. So these bills give us an opportunity not just to decarbonize, but at the same time, make sure that those jobs, make sure those manufacturing opportunities, those processing opportunities for critical minerals and beyond happen in the U.S. and other countries that we're allied with as well. And that's incredibly exciting, but it's something that's going to require a sustained effort, a focus on to make sure that we're doing that. And then the other thing we're doing, a lot of uh, research and development at our 17 national labs in particular is can we make batteries out of substances that have more ample supplies and don't have the same bottleneck challenges? And there's some really interesting innovation going on on those ways. Can we recycle more so that when a battery in an electric vehicle goes out of service, how do we get that back as quickly, as cheaply, as efficiently, as economically and environmentally friendly as we possibly can? So the recycling piece, the materials piece, the lightweighting piece, there's a lot of innovation going on that's relevant in the critical mineral space as well. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. And, um, you know, one of the things that's uh, just a quick reflection on the past of resources for the future, which was, you know, established in 1952, coming out of something called the Materials Policy Commission in the Truman administration. And one of the things that we've learned over the decades is that, you know, what you said that, you know, when we face resource scarcity issues, like we face now with critical minerals, we need markets to do work, to provide incentives for reducing the demand for those by substituting and being more efficient about their use. You know, we need new sources of supply. We need to do that in a diverse way globally. And really important, we need technological innovation to find substitutes for that. So glad to hear the DOE is already on. That doesn't surprise me. Absolutely. Um, Richard, I have to say, whenever the secretary and I think we come up with a good idea, we bring it to our staff. Inevitably, someone's been working on it for 20, 30 years at some lab. Maybe it needs to be elevated or funded more, et cetera. It's just a phenomenal group of colleagues. Again, that's why you should all who are interested in a job, go to, yeah, the, go to our website and uh, become part of our clean energy core. I think that's only three that's so only far. That's only three so far. But, 
and I'll vouch for that. Great place to work. Um, we've covered a, a huge amount of uh, great territory today. So I want to thank you, Deputy Secretary Turk, for a wonderful conversation today. Thank the audience, both here in person and online. And uh, I want to also thank all of RPF supporters who helped make this possible. And uh, again, it's a real pleasure. Thank you so much. That was Richard Newell, President and CEO of Resources for the Future, in conversation with the Deputy Secretary at the U.S. Department of Energy, David Turk. If you like what you heard, remember to like or favorite RFF's Policy Leadership Series podcast on your podcast platform of choice, where we will release new episodes with leading environmental and energy policy decision makers. You also can find recordings from our Policy Leadership Series events at rff.org pls and receive updates about RFF's events and podcasts at rff.org subscribe. The live event was produced by Sarah Tung, Donnie Peterson, and Justine Sullivan. Music is from Blue Dot Sessions. RFF podcasts are managed by me, Elizabeth Wasson, and made possible by you, our listeners. You can contribute to RFF today by visiting rff.org support. Thank you for joining us.